We'll begin Hebrews chapter 3, and just two verses that I'd like to draw our attention to at the beginning of the message this morning. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Please follow along as I read Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, One of the most significant, uh, interesting, and I would add somewhat disturbing uh, sociological trends in our day and age is the ever-accelerating slide toward a more individualistic and depersonalized society. Uh, So just in the last decade or two, the following things have been made possible. Uh, My wife and I can supply our house with groceries uh, without ever setting foot in a grocery store. Uh, We can order books, electronics, tools, home furnishings, without ever setting foot in a store at all. In fact, we can have these things delivered to our door within 24 to 48 hours through Amazon.com. We can get almost any type of cuisine fresh cooked and delivered to our home within minutes without ever setting foot in a restaurant or interacting with a waiter or waitress. We can find out information on the weather, the news, the stock market without even turning on the TV or opening up the computer or even checking your phone, you can just ask Alexa or uh, Siri. Uh, We can legally and successfully school our children at home without ever setting foot in a classroom. Uh, Many people today can be gainfully employed without ever leaving their home or setting foot in an office. In fact, one of our elders, our non-staff pastors, uh, Pastor Ben, I like to tease him Uh, He works from home, he's a software engineer, and I've encouraged him to just get a mini fridge up there in the home office, and he'd never have to go downstairs. He could just go from the bed to the home office to the mini fridge, and he'll have everything he needs. Uh, We can, in theory at least, maintain friendships uh, without ever seeing someone face-to-face, through social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. I have friends I haven't seen in 10 years, and yet I can pretty faithfully convey to you the major developments in their life over the last 10 years uh, by stalking them on Facebook. And even in so-called churches, the depersonalizing trend continues. You can have preaching via a video screen. You don't actually need live incarnational preaching. In fact, the preacher can be dead for all you know. He could have recorded the sermon last night, died of a heart attack Sunday morning, and the screen's there, he's up, and Uh, That's really all you need. Uh, Because most churches do not practice meaningful membership, uh, church discipline, biblical accountability, and shepherding care, you can be part of a church uh, without ever interacting with a single Christian. Uh, That is to say, in the church, uh, the wider trend toward individualism and independence and isolation uh, is simply accommodated on its way to mass acceptance. Well, into this individualistic, depersonalized, and antisocial age comes the Bible and its vision for church life, which is altogether different from the spirit of the age. 
If you read the New Testament letters written to various churches and honestly seek to appreciate the various writers' expectations for church life, you will quickly detect some very basic assumptions they have that loom large in their minds with respect to church life. So I'll just mention two. Uh, The New Testament writers assume, first of all, that community in the Christian life is not optional. Community in the Christian life is not optional, but rather it is essential. Uh, That is to say, it is assumed by the writers of the New Testament that God clearly expects that His people will live out their Christian lives in the context of actual, personal, meaningful community with other Christians. The Bible plainly calls us to community. We're not Bible people if we're individualistic and independent in our Christian lives. Uh, The Bible would even teach us that you cannot live the Christian life at all outside the context of Christian community. So just one illustration of this. Uh, Do you realize that you are actually incapable of obeying most of the New Testament's commands if you're not part of a local church? Uh, That is to say, meaningfully involved in a plural community of God's people. Most of the New Testament's commands, if they're to be observed at all, assume a plurality of people, in fact, require a plurality of people living in community together. So some examples. Uh, How can you obey that oft-repeated command to love one another if there is no one another? How can you forgive one another if you're on your own and there's no one in your life to forgive? How can you speak the truth with your brother if there's no brother to speak the truth to? How can you be patient with and bear with one another if there's no other Christians in your life that require your patience and forbearance? You see what I'm saying? The private, individualistic, isolationist, antisocial Christian life is no Christian life at all. Not, Not if we're going to be biblical in our thinking. The Christian life must be lived out in the context of a functioning Christian community. You simply cannot live the Christian life in isolation from the body of Christ. But a second assumption you detect if you read the New Testament letters, it's not just that community in the Christian life is not optional, but also the Bible would teach that we need other Christians in our lives if we're going to grow and if we're going to make it to heaven. We need, it's a matter of necessity, to have other Christians in our lives if we're going to grow in sanctification and in grace and in Christ-likeness, and if we're going to actually make it to heaven, that is finally, ultimately, be saved on the last day. The New Testament writers just assume this. The Bible teaches that one of the primary instruments that God uses in our sanctification and in our final salvation is our brothers and sisters in the church. Now, we are those who believe God is totally sovereign, sovereign over all. He's sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in providence, and He's sovereign in salvation. We'd love to say that salvation from beginning to end is the work, is the fruit of a sovereign God. Amen? But when talking about God's sovereignty in salvation, I think we should say more than just that. We furthermore believe again, if we're biblical in our thinking, that the way the sovereign God often executes or accomplishes His will is through what we call means. The Bible teaches that all true Christians, all of the elect will persevere unto the end and will not fall away. God will keep His elect. And the Bible also teaches that one of the appointed instruments He will use 
because our sovereign God is a God of means, one of the appointed means he will use to keep you in the faith unto the end is the other Christians in your life, namely your brothers and sisters in the church. That's plainly what Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 says. It's like the go-to text for this point. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So I'm supposed to look inward, and I'm supposed to be warned about an unbelieving heart. And and what's the antidote that, that is proposed by the writer to the Hebrews? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The New Testament assumes our fundamental need of other Christians in our lives, not only for our progressive sanctification, but for our final salvation. So do you realize, brother or sister, that you are the appointed instrument that God has ordained to keep another Christian from falling away? Have you thought of that as part of your purpose and mission in this church? Christian, you have the God-ordained privilege and responsibility to care for your brothers and sisters in the church, to steward their souls, and to help them make it to heaven. I'm to understand that one of the means by which God is going to keep me in the faith is by giving me faithful brothers and sisters who are meaningfully involved in my spiritual life. So I encourage you, get comfortable with this idea. I need other Christians in my life. I'm not going to ask you to say that out loud, but just say it to your soul now. I need other Christians in my life. It is God's will. It is God's good design. He has made me up in such a way that I need other Christians involved in my walk with God. This is God's good purpose, not only for my sanctification, but for my final salvation, like my staying in the faith and making it there on the last day. The Bible is plain. You need other Christians in your life, and other Christians need you. So those are a couple of very obvious assumptions undergirding the New Testament teaching on Christian community. Uh, Community in the Christian life is essential, not optional, and Christians need brothers and sisters in their lives for perseverance in the faith. So this leads to the subject matter of this sermon. I know that was a long introduction. We've been in a series called The Happy Church, exploring biblical dynamics of church life. Uh, The first sermon in the series, we said that in the happy church, the membership functions as a family. The following week, we said that in the happy church, every member is valued. And then last week, we considered that in the happy church, the membership understands the dynamics of sin and grace and their bearing on church life. Now this morning, I'd like to set forth the following principle from Scripture. In the happy church, the members take an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives. In the happy church the members take an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives. Another way we could say that is that in the happy church, the members understand it to be their responsibility and their privilege to help one another to heaven. We understand it to be our responsibility and privilege to help one another to heaven. So there's two things I'd like to do this morning in the time that remains. Uh, The first thing is to simply show this to you from the Bible. So I want you to see from a number of texts that we are called to be intimately involved and engaged in one another's lives in a number of meaningful ways. And then secondly, uh, I'd like to try to be practical and give some practical helps to realizing this in our church body, like here 
at Emmanuel Church. So first, let me show you this in the Bible. Okay, when we take stock of the many texts uh, that set forth the ideals for Christian fellowship and Christian community, we cannot help but elevate our expectations for what our corporate life together should be like as a local church. So I looked at much of the New Testament this week and just cherry-picked verses uh, left and right on this subject, and it started to get a little bit ridiculous, actually. So I'm just going to read a lot of verses to you, kind of uh, 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 rapid-fire style. You can write them down if you want, or I can give them to you later. And really the goal is just five minutes from now for you to be like, okay, 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 I see this. It's all over the Bible. I don't need to be persuaded of this anymore, okay? So how does the Bible convey this idea that we're to take an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives? First of all, we're told to exhort and encourage one another regularly, even daily. And that's the text I read a moment ago from Hebrews 3, verse 13 says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're told we're to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. How can we actually live that out if we don't understand in one another's lives what are the sources of joy and sorrow? We need to know each other experientially well enough that we can enter in to one another's joy and sorrow. We're told we're to help one another in the fight against sin, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins one to another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, We're told we're to show hospitality to one another. Romans 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, We're told we're to be members of one another. Remarkable phrase found in Ephesians 4, 25. Uh, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That is to say, we are organically and intimately connected to each other in such a way that we're said to be members of one another. I'm a member of you, you're a member of me. There's that organic, vital connection that we have to one another. And what does that look like? How does that work itself out? 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Furthermore, we're told to sing the truth to and with one another. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5.18 and 19, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, We're to work together furthermore to preserve unity in the church. Ephesians 4.1 through 3 Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, uh, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
And then one of the most oft-repeated commands in the New Testament, we're to love one another. We're to love one another. What is love? Uh, Love is an affection of the heart. It's a commitment of the will, and it's a sacrifice of the life. Uh, it's, it's, It's giving oneself entirely for the good of the other person in a way that's not just cognitive and cerebral, but is actually affectionate and experiential. And so Jesus says to his disciples, John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And what's the standard? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Romans 12, 9, and 10, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And finally, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for the one who loves covers a multitude of sins. Now, what's the point of reading off all these texts? Was to demonstrate that the New Testament's expectations for the church is that we be eagerly, thoughtfully, intimately, and lovingly engaged in one another's lives in the church for the building up of the body, for the mutual edification and encouragement of the members, for the preservation of unity, for the mortification of sin, for the final salvation of our souls, for the honor of Jesus Christ. We are to take an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives and to engage in meaningful Christian fellowship and community with one another. It should be clear even from a cursory reading of these texts that the Bible has a high standard for the sort of experiential knowledge and love and care we're to have for one another. The sort of superficial, surface-level relationships that we're so accustomed to Those will not cut it in the church. The Bible would set a higher mark, a more wonderful standard for what our lives and our relationships should be like together in the church. The Bible expects us, apparently, from these texts, to be regularly praying for one another, encouraging one another, showing hospitality to one another, rejoicing with one another, weeping with one another, singing with one another, exhorting one another, admonishing one another, helping one another. It goes on and on. Clearly, the Bible's standards for church life require a very meaningful, experiential involvement in one another's lives. Our relationships in the church cannot be superficial, and our knowledge and love for one another cannot be theoretical. It actually has to work itself out in practice and in experience. The Bible expects us to take a very eager interest in one another's spiritual well-being. Now, these are high ideals for Christian community. If you're like me, you see them, and they seem so far out of reach. Who could really actually live like this? Do you know any church that's actually like this, that actually does this? Well, they are high ideals, and they're ideals that I think we can achieve by the grace of Christ and the power of God's Spirit, but they're not going to be achieved without deliberate thought and deliberate effort on our part and a commitment to pray that these graces would be realized in our fellowship as a local church. Brothers and sisters, we can be this kind of church, but if we're actually going to achieve these ideals, we must start with very simple and practical steps. 
Even Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, has to practice scales. Uh, what seems like second nature, like he grew up with the cello as like a second limb. Uh, you don't see him uh, down in the music room practicing for hours a day. This is going to take deliberate, day-by-day practical steps. And with God's grace and the help of His Spirit, we, we can be this kind of church. We can actually accomplish these ideals that He's holding out to us. It is amazing what you can accomplish with the help of God's Spirit and just a very slow, steady, step-by-step plotting in the right direction. And that's what we're after now in this part of the message. I, I hope to offer some practical helps. So we want to realize these ideals. What can we do practically to more faithfully realize the ideals and standards that are held forth to us in Scripture. So I want to offer a very simple, hopefully helpful paradigm for how to think about our involvement in one another's lives and how we can be more meaningfully involved in one another's spiritual lives. So here it is. Our involvement in one another's spiritual lives should be personal, regular, and deliberate. Personal, regular, and deliberate. What does it look like to take an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives? Well, it will require us to be personal, regular, and deliberate in that goal, in that object. So consider with me those three points. First of all, our involvement in one another's spiritual lives should be personal. Now, I said at the beginning of the message, we live in the most depersonalized age in human history, and that won't work in the church. We need to recognize if we're going to be Bible people, we're going to have to go against the spirit of the age, which is a hard thing to do, I understand. I'm just saying that in our context, our conditioning doesn't help us here. Uh, But we're new creatures, and we're members of a new humanity, and we're citizens of a new kingdom. With the grace of Christ, we can do this, but it will take working against uh, the wave, the slide, the pressure of our culture. Our involvement in one another's lives must be personal. That is, our lives need to touch at some point and in some fashion. It's a bit of an overused phrase, but it's very appropriate here. Uh, We're after life-on-life discipleship. We're life-on-life community. Our lives actually touch. They actually meet. Uh, This is what I meant when I said our love and our knowledge of one another can't be theoretical. It has to be experimental. It has to be practical. It has to be worked out in actual day-to-day experience. Life-on-life community. Brothers and sisters, how are we going to bear one another's burdens if we're not even close enough to each other to know what one another's burdens are? Uh, Do you know what burdens the brother or sister in front of you or behind you has been bearing this week? Well, we need to find out if we're going to be faithful to Galatians 6.2, where we're told that bearing one another's burdens is part of the law of Christ. Uh, How are we going to actually weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice if we don't know the sources of joy and sorrow in one another's lives? I need to know experientially, uh, thoughtfully, practically, What is it that makes you rejoice? And what is it that's bringing sorrow into your life if I'm going to be faithful to the Scriptures? In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, which I read a moment ago, the vision Paul lays out for the church body is that when one member suffers, 
every member suffers. Now, I know it is impossible to be acquainted with everybody's suffering in the church at all times uh, immediately. Okay? The Bible's not unrealistic. But you appreciate something of Paul's point. We're to have such a knowledge of one another and such bonds with one another that we really do live life together, uh, such that we experience joy, we experience sorrow, we experience gain and loss together as a church family because we're involved in one another's lives. Our lives have touched one another. I'm to be personally involved in your life such that I take on your suffering and your joy, such that when you're hurting, I'm hurting. And when you're made glad by some great blessing of God, I'm made glad as well. If you're going to be part of a church, you have to work to know the people in the church And you have to let the other people get to know you, like personally, truly, with real knowledge. We're not allowed to wear facades in the church. The Bible would tell me that I am to equate myself with the real, personal, experiential burdens of my brothers and sisters, not as a pastor, but as a member of the church. This is not a standard just for those who have a responsibility to provide shepherding care, but rather this is a standard for all the brothers and sisters in the church. I'm to know your burdens and your cares and your needs, and I'm to acquaint you with my own burdens and cares and needs. We should accept this as a biblical principle. You're meant to be known by others in the church, and you really must get to know others yourself. This is one of the reasons why we here at Emmanuel put such an emphasis on coming early and staying late after the service and creating opportunities for fellowship on Sunday nights or perhaps during the week. So, confession, I don't always find fellowship all that easy, personally. I think a lot of people assume I'm an extrovert just because my job requires me to talk a lot, but I assure you I'm not. Given the choice between a book and a lunch with someone else, I'm going to choose the book nine times out of ten. Or if left to my sinful, recalcitrant heart, I'll choose the book nine times out of ten. So I want to invite you along with me, if you're like me, Mortify that impulse uh, to isolate and to withdraw uh, and to vacate the room as soon as it seems things are dying down. Like sometimes the service ends and we think, I gotta get out of here as quick as possible, lest I get caught up in a conversation. It's natural to feel that way for some of us. I just encourage you, in light of God's word, mortify that impulse. The Bible wants you to know other people in the church and wants you to be known by others in the church. So I urge you, stay after church and get to know these brothers and sisters, or better yet, invite someone out to lunch after the service. And don't just talk about superficial things. Allow your conversations to go deeper than the merely superficial. Ask somebody after church, hey, what did you think of the sermon? What's one way in which the sermon was helpful to you? How has your week really been? How's your walk with Christ going? Listen, the Bible would give to us the warrant, the privilege of such ownership and stake in one another's lives that you have a right to ask that question. How is your walk with Christ going? Are you experiencing progress in your fight against sin? Uh, Things going well in marriage and family. What are some specific ways I can pray for you? The vision the New Testament holds out for us is bearing each other's burdens, rejoicing together and suffering together and walking walking alongside one another in our pilgrimage to heaven. 
And we're to help one another in that journey, in that pilgrimage. So ask your brothers and sisters, how's your walk with Christ going? How's your time in the Word been lately? How can I be praying for you? And listen, if you're asked those questions, be willing to actually answer them and to do so sincerely and honestly. Instead of just being like, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm thanks for doing well, good, thanks, bye, thanks, see ya. No, stop, look your brother and sister in the eye, and think about your answer, and then tell them. By the grace of God, I've been doing well lately. The Lord has been teaching me X, Y, and Z. Actually, it's been a bit of a down period. I'm not exactly sure why. Can I ask you to pray for me just that I'd be more regular in the Word of God this week and that I'd grow in my faith in these months? I want to be a faithful Christian, and I'm asking your help in that fight. The point is, I need to know you personally if I'm to live according to the Scripture's expectations for our life together, and you need to know me. The Bible does not have a category for the anonymous church member. You are simply not permitted by the Word of God to be anonymous in the church. And, and, and me and my fellow elders, this is part of our mission, to make you as uncomfortable as possible being anonymous, okay? That's not something we want to be able to slide and to go here at Emmanuel Church. We cannot be anonymous in the church, but rather we should be meaningfully involved in one another's lives. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Bible puts such a premium on us gathering together regularly. We have to be together if we're really going to know one another. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, get personal with people. We're after life-on-life community together. We can't isolate. We can't withdraw. Our lives are meant to touch one another. Uh, And we're to be involved meaningfully, spiritually, personally in one another's lives. All right, secondly now, our involvement in one another's lives is to be personal. Now, secondly, it's to be regular. Uh, Regular. The New Testament definitely emphasizes the regular gathering of the church body. That is when the whole church corporately gathers for worship on the Lord's Day. Uh, And certainly, if we're to be meaningfully involved in one another's lives in the church, we need to be making much of the Sunday gathering. Need to be making much of the Sunday gathering. It's a little alarming to me uh, in our day and age how easily and casually uh, people seem to throw off Sundays. Uh, The list of things that we allow to intrude upon our regular gathering together seems to get longer and longer. So let me just encourage you, brother or sister, to settle this in your own heart and conscience. I would just urge you to make this one of the great mainstays of your life, that I gather with the Lord's people in the Lord's presence on the Lord's day. And wild horses couldn't drag me away. Family brunch is not going to keep me from the Sunday gathering. Uh, A child's temper tantrum coming out the door is not going to keep me from the gathering on Sundays. A late night Saturday night is not going to keep me from the regular gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day. I need to be with the Lord's people, in the Lord's presence, in the Lord's house on the Lord's Day. But not only would the Bible call us to prioritize the regular corporate gathering of the church, But I think it would also commend individual and small group interaction on a regular basis with one another. Now, I'm not saying the Bible teaches you must have small groups in your church to be faithful to the New Testament. That's just one way we're trying to do the principle I'm commending now, okay? 
And that is that there is to be more interaction and engagement than just the once-a-week Sunday gathering. But rather, there is to be more regular interaction. So uh, we could see the example of the newly formed church at the end of Acts 2. You don't need to turn there. Uh, But Peter preaches this uh, profoundly powerful uh, uh, message. Thousands are converted. They're added to the number. And then they start living as a church together. And this is the description we're given in Acts 2, 42 and following. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Uh, My brother Aaron Menikoff, pastor from Atlanta, he's been here the last couple of years, coming again in October, yay. Uh, He'll be preaching uh, in mid-October. He refers to this passage, I don't know if he coined this phrase, but he talks about the day-by-dayness of church life. Uh, There's a certain day-by-dayness that should characterize life in the church. Uh, This is similar to the idea we have now in the form not of a description of a church, but in an imperative command in Hebrews 3.13, which I read at the start of the message. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, So you see, there has to be this sort of regular, consistent, day-by-dayness in our life together as a church. There is a built-in regularity that is expected in our life together, which means a a once-a-week corporate gathering simply will not cut it if we're to realize the Bible's ideals. We believe, right, the Bible, when it says we need to be exhorting one another every day. It's not an exaggeration. It's not unrealistic. It's the actual expectation of God's Word. It's given to us with great seriousness, actually, Uh, that we are so easily ensnared by sin, we're so prone to fall away, therefore exhort one another every day. That's what God is calling us to. And the Bible doesn't describe precisely what this will look like, but there is this principle. There should be a certain day-by-dayness that characterizes our life together with fellow believers. And if I could just say from a pastoral standpoint, I think this is an area where we can grow as a church. Uh, So I'm not thinking now about corporate, once-a-week, Sunday morning worship gatherings, almost nothing more important than that in the life of a church. But I'm talking about more the the day-by-day stuff now, Uh, the regular, consistent, uh, everyday sort of involvement the Bible calls us to in terms of our involvement uh, in one another's lives. I think we need more points of contact with one another in our day-to-day, not less. Uh, And understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about putting more meetings on the church calendar. I'm not talking about scheduling more events. I'm not talking about planning more things as a church. Listen, we cannot limit ourselves to the church calendar uh, if we're going to truly realize the Bible's ideals for church fellowship. Uh, Philosophically, your elders are committed to a very simple church schedule, and we're still trying to work this out. I think sometimes Uh, In the last two years, we've allowed unnecessary things to intrude on that schedule, but we're committed, at least philosophically, 
pray for us to work it out in practice, but philosophically, to a very simple schedule. Like, we do not want to fill the church calendar with tons of events that we're asking people to come to. And there's a reason for that. Uh, We believe the locus of church ministry uh, is not in however many endless programs we could spin out as a leadership to ask people to show up to and staff. I know the locus of the church's ministry is the day-by-day involvement of God's people in one another's lives. It's the coffees, and it's the dinner together, and it's the praying together, and it's the texting each other, and talking on the phone, and doing commutes together. It's the regular day-by-day involvement of the brothers and sisters of the church in one another's lives. We understand that to be uh, where ministry is really happening, where meaningful involvement is really taking place in our church life. So I get asked this question quite often, and it's such an encouragement to be asked this question. I think God has been kind to work within our church um, the grace of a, a glad servant-heartedness. I think people are eager to serve, and that's a wonderful thing to witness as a pastor. But I get asked often this question, Alex, how can I serve in the church? If you know me, you know the church, what's a way I can serve in the church? I could ask that question at least once a week, which is a wonderful thing. If you ask me how to serve in the church, and some of you already know what I'm going to say, if you ask me how to serve in the church, I'm almost always going to say the same thing. I'm not going to ask you to sign up for a church ministry. I'm not going to ask you to serve as a greeter or serve in the nursery, though we really need always more and more volunteers in the nursery, shameless plug there. But that's not normally the answer I give to someone asking that question. Well, let me look at the list of the 10 ministries we have and how can I get more volunteers for those things. No, the answer that I'm almost always going to give is this. Consider opening up time in your schedule for one or both of these two things. Consider opening up time in your schedule for one or both of these two things. First of all, consider opening up time in your schedule to host other Christians in your home. Consider opening up time in your family schedule, whatever that looks like, to host other Christians in your home. If you want to know one of the most helpful things you can do practically in serving this body of believers and building up this body in holiness and in maturity, have people in your home. Or if your home is not conducive to that sort of thing, ask someone out to lunch. Or plan a picnic in the park. Get together is the point. And in our culture, that's best done, I think, in the home. Now, just allow me a little pastoral privilege here in working this out, okay? Just asking the question, this is a I, not the Lord kind of question, okay? But would it be impossible for you as a family to commit that one night every other week we're going to have other Christians in our home. Whether that's for lunch or for dinner or for coffee on the front porch, whatever. Is it possible for you as a family to commit to having other Christians in your home once every other week? I recognize qualifications that should be made that's not doable for everybody, but I'm just asking the question. Uh, Now, I'm going to venture to step on some toes here, but let me just suggest, if that seems daunting to you, like how on earth could we do that? 
and the busyness of life. How on earth could I commit to having Christians in my home every other week? Might I suggest that it could be time to sit down and reorganize some of the priorities in your life. Just consult the family calendar, family schedule, and see what you find. What does my schedule, my calendar say about my priorities? Does it reflect the priorities of the Bible? Or does it reflect the priorities of our culture? I was recently with my wife in South Carolina last weekend and um, was with some of her old friends from college, and this was basically a group of her old roommates. They lived together in what has been described to me as a very weird kind of house. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, in the couple of years after college. And these roommates all lived together. And it was really sweet seeing them reunite and talk together. Apparently, they committed as a group of single young ladies in their early 20s uh, that we're going to set aside one night a week and we're going to go through the directory and we're going to have people in the church over to our home. Because we want to be more meaningfully involved in the lives of other Christians in the church. We need to be deliberate in making sure this happens. So once a week, we're going to set aside, we're all going to consult our schedules, pick a night that's good for us, and we're going to host another family in our home. Listen, they didn't have a very impressive house. They didn't have lots of money to buy uh, the best food, but they just wanted more meaningfully and deliberately to be obedient to the priorities of God's Word. And their testimony is that it was a wonderful experience, uh, that they really learned practically to enter into other people's lives and to let other people in to their lives. I'm not talking about entertaining. That's kind of the older way of thinking about hospitality. Do you entertain? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about making the house spotless and getting out the cloth napkins and preparing a five-course meal for your guests. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about taking the scriptures seriously, saying, I need other Christians in my life. I'm being humble enough to say, and other Christians need me. And the sovereign God who is sovereign over all has appointed me, little old me, as an instrument in his hands to be a blessing and encouragement to other Christians in the church. And more than that, he's ordained that they would be the appointed means to keep me in the faith and to help me on my way to heaven. And I need that so badly. I'm going to rearrange the calendar. Uh, Me and my spouse are going to sit down. We're going to talk. What can we do? What can we arrange to have more Christians meaningfully involved in our lives on a week-to-week basis. This is to realize the day-by-dayness the New Testament would call us to. All right, now I'm really going to trespass on your patience and again ask for some pastoral privilege. Can I suggest just an observation, uh, culturally, what might be one of the greatest obstacles to actually doing this? I'm a little bit concerned about our culture's, when I say our culture, I mean like Winston-Salem 2019, I'm a little concerned about our culture's somewhat obsessive devotion uh, to our children's extracurricular activities. As if uh, to miss soccer practice or to miss piano lessons or to miss a nap uh, is somehow going to ruin our children irreparably. Okay, so soccer moms and dads, Just a wager, I don't know this for sure, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but just a wager. I don't think, I wouldn't predict uh, that your kids are gonna play in the Premier League. No offense, I think your kids are capable of great things, but the Premier League is very competitive. And very few Americans get to play in the Premier League, and besides, they start recruiting when you're like four or five years old, okay? 
But I do realistically have the hope that each one of your children will be saved by the grace of God and will be church men and women their whole life long. And so just the question I'm asking pastorally is are you preparing, are you conditioning your children to be church men and women? Or are you subtly teaching them, not intentionally, but subtly teaching them that if there's a hobby or an extracurricular activity or a non-essential academic pursuit outside of school, that that takes precedence over this priority of gathering with God's people and having other Christians involved in your life more meaningfully. Listen, your daughter may get a 1500 on her SATs, but so what if she loses her soul? And your son may get a full-ride scholarship to some baseball school no one's ever heard of. And so what if he doesn't learn, if he's not taught how to follow the God of his father and his mother? I'm just speaking in terms of priorities. Nothing wrong with extracurricular activities. Don't hear me say that. I hope my kids will be involved in all kinds of activities. But Jenna and I have had to have this conversation. How are we going to organize our family life in such a way that our kids know meaningful, day-by-day involvement in one another's lives in the church was a priority. I'm not just talking about coming to church on Sundays. A a, a 45-minute Sunday school lesson is not a sufficient enough invitation to your children to come into the Christian life. Uh, We're after more than that. So just think about this. If you were to have someone over every other week, your dinner table with your kids, And you just made it part of your habit. We're always going to ask the Christians that come into our home to tell us their testimonies. If you have Christians at your dinner table with your kids sharing their testimonies every other week, that's 26 testimonies a year your kids are going to hear, or 52 if you have couples over, or 104 if you manage to have two couples over. 104 testimonies of God's supernatural grace raising a sinner from death to life. And you're telling me not one of those might awaken your own child? to their own sinfulness, their need of a savior, and their need to follow after Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. It's just an idea. Just throwing that out there, asking us to think about what benefits accrue to us by having more meaningful involvement in one another's lives on a week-to-week, on a day-to-day basis. And I'm not talking, again, about entertaining. Not talking about making sure the house is spotless and there's no speck of dust anywhere. We had a couple families over this week. It was paper plates, plastic cups, serve yourself. And if I lose track of my son and he takes food off your plate, I'm very sorry. (laughs) But is that not achievable? Is that not one way we could actually realize the ideals the New Testament is holding out to us? I said there were two things I asked people to consider. The first is to consider creating more time in the schedule to open up your home to other Christians And the second is this, consider opening up time in your schedule to disciple someone one-on-one or in a small group setting. To disciple someone one-on-one or in a small group setting. All I mean by that word disciple is to help another Christian grow in their faith. So getting together regularly and investing spiritually in one another. It doesn't have to be a Titus II situation where someone's older and younger, you could be peers, it's fine. Getting together with another Christian and just trying to practically, deliberately, personally, regularly encourage one another in Christian growth. And by the way, this is happening all the time in our church. Again, just be practical, helpful to you. Here are some examples. 
Uh, Greg Paisley came to me and asked for a way he could serve more meaningfully in the church, because you all know that guy never serves, you know. That's a joke if you don't know Greg, he's, he's into everything. Uh, but he asked, how can I serve more? And um, I encouraged Greg in this idea. Can you disciple someone one-on-one or in a small group setting? And he ran with it. And uh, he's just been getting together with a couple of brothers, I think, every other week, Tuesday nights or something like that. And uh, they're talking about the Christian life and work and vocation and going through uh, Jerry Bridges' book on trusting God. Because Greg Paisley, Kevin Kaiser, and Jacob Grant. Just getting together, reading a book, trying to encourage each other. Brad Kinnison gets together every other week with two younger members in our church, Eli Beal and Harris Van, uh, and they go through books together as well. I think they went through Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. They're going through Discipling Now by Mark Dever, and they just get together early in the morning before work for Brad and school for uh, the boys. Uh, Brad Clark and Zach DePrima are getting together on Saturday mornings, going through J.I. Packer's A Quest for Godliness. Uh, Andrea Allen and Melissa Clark have been getting together with their two eldest daughters to study the book of Joshua together. Kelly Streer has organized a mom's play date group that gets together on Tuesday mornings. My wife goes to that group and is routinely just edified and blessed by that very simple thing. The kids got to get outside and play, and some of our moms have kids, and we all get together, and while the kids are playing, moms just try to practically encourage each other. Wonderful way to, again, realize this day-by-dayness that we're called to as a church. Uh, there's a group in our church called the Juliets which is a group of young single women hoping that a corresponding Romeo's group will get started. No, that's, that's not what they do. Juliet stands for Just Us Ladies in a Manual to Serve. And it's a gathering of about a half dozen women who get together for mutual encouragement and service, just trying to find windows in the church to serve brothers and sisters in the church body. There's another 30 things like that going on in the life of our church. And consider this sermon... Uh, uh, request that we double it, that we just realize more and more practical ways we can work this out as a local body and be more meaningfully involved in one another's lives. And I just say, don't be afraid to get scrappy with it. Uh, garden together. Uh, you know, you, you got to go to Costco and get $800 of groceries, and you got to do that once a month run, okay? Well, ask someone else you know goes to Costco to hop in. Let's go together. If you have a commute to work every day, find another brother or sister in the church who has a commute to work and call each other maybe once a week. Memorize scripture together and talk about what you're learning in your devotional time or what God's been teaching you in this season of your life. Find ways to get together. Hey, I'm going down to Ikea to pick up some furniture. Anybody else want to go with me? Hop in. Just find little ways that we can incorporate one another in each other's lives in the church. My time is getting away from me. I come to the third and final point. I'll be much briefer here. Our involvement in one another's lives should be personal. Our lives should touch one another. Life on life should be regular. We should realize a consistent day-by-dayness in our life together. Thirdly and finally, our involvement in one another's lives should be deliberate. I'll read a text I read earlier in the message, Hebrews 10 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love that language. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The goal is to see in my brother or sister uh, them 
being stirred up in love and good works. And I'm to think to myself, okay, that's my goal for my brother and sister. Like, that's my business, that's my job, that's why God has put me in their life. Now, I'm to consider, I'm to actually think in a deliberate way, Lord, how can I do that? Let us consider how to stir one another up, to give thought. I've been trying to do this more on my way to, to regular meetings. I'm going to meet with so-and-so for breakfast. Lord, help me think, what's a way I can actually stir up in this brother or sister love and good works? Think about that in your interactions with one another. This is what God is calling us to, to encourage each other, to stir one another up, to minister to one another in deliberate ways. This text assumes that I have your interests and your spiritual good at heart, and I'm to deliberately reflect on how to see you grow as a Christian. You're to deliberately reflect, how can I see Alex grow as a Christian? Our fellowship together requires us to be deliberate, to stir one another up to love and good work. So if you come to my house to watch a basketball game, that's a, something I do for fun, easy to bring people in on that, create some time in my schedule to be with other Christians. But we get together and, and, and we talk about LeBron James and whether or not he has enough gas in the tank to win another NBA title. Christian fellowship hasn't happened yet. And then if, if, if we talk about the summer and how long and hot it is and we can't wait for the colder months to get here, Christian fellowship hasn't happened yet. But then if you say to me, hey, Alex, I remember you asked in small group, uh, you asked us to pray that you would become just more regular in your quiet time. Has that happened? Are you experiencing some progress in that? Now we're cooking. Uh, the plane uh, has left, and Christian fellowship is taking place. I, I say to you, you know, you were asking me, you were telling me about a lost coworker you were trying to talk to. Have you had opportunities? to share the gospel with them? How's that going? Now deliberate Christian fellowship is happening. Now we're stirring one another up to love and to good works. Christian fellowship must be deliberate. Uh, it has an aim, an object, and that object is edification and encouragement and help and comfort and accountability and growth. So brothers and sisters, don't settle uh, for the superficial. It's a pleasant thing to talk about the weather or to talk about fashion or to talk about our favorite sports teams. Nothing wrong with that. But we have to know, we have to learn how to go deeper with each other. We have to learn how to deliberately and meaningfully enter into one, another, one another's lives spiritually. Uh, so this has been a hurriedly presented sermon and more notes to get through than normal. I've not qualified my statements as much as I should. I'm keenly aware of that. I was looking at the notes this morning. I thought, I mean, it'd be helpful if I could put some more qualifications in there. So let me just ask, in all charity, receive this message just as a humble offering, a sincere offering, uh, that, that God would use to help us in this particular local church to be more meaningfully and personally and regularly and deliberately involved in one another's spiritual lives. I love that picture in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read that book. Uh, at the very end, Christian is trying to cross the river. Uh, he's, he's won all these great battles, and he's come this far, and he's about to get to the celestial city, and all of a sudden, he can't feel the bottom anymore. And he starts panicking, uh, and he thinks, I'm not going to make it. And, and it's so beautiful the way Bunyan introduces this figure, uh, Hopeful. 
who's there alongside Christian, and he's calling out scriptures, and he's uh, seeking to call his mind to ways in which God has proved himself faithful. Uh, Can we realize that sort of a thing in our church? Uh, That we really are helping one another to heaven? Can we be humble enough, aware enough of our own sinfulness and our own deceitful hearts to say, I need you and you need me? We really do need one another to make it across the river and into the celestial city. Brothers and sisters, let's work this out together. God being our helper, with deliberate, slow, practical steps empowered by the Spirit of God, let's work to be a church more meaningfully involved, taking an eager interest in one another's spiritual lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the church. Where would we be without the church, without the family of God, without brothers and sisters who, like us, look to you as Father to provide us with every good thing? Lord, please forgive us for our failures in this area. You have laid before us in your word a very blessed and wonderful and beautiful but very high standard for what life in the church could be like and should be like. We aspire to that standard. We aspire to these ideals. We want to be a church in which all the members are bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, praying for one another, seeking to fight against sin together, seeking to grow in faith together, showing hospitality to one another. Please, Lord, help us to do these things. Help us to work this out in our Christian experience. If there are ways that you would move upon us now to reconsider our lives and our family schedules and our priorities to make this more significant in our experience, we ask that you would gently do that for us. Please, Lord, convict us only by your word. May we believe and hold fast only to the truth, not the pressures of the culture, or even the pressures of the preacher. Please, Lord, convict us with the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.